All right. Um, only uh, the only announcements I'm aware of the garage sale are the uh, garage sale raised money for Camperete this Saturday, and then the congregational meeting on Sunday, immediately following the morning uh, morning service. There's also sign-up sheets out in the uh, fellowship hall for those who want to help out uh, various ways with the uh, administration and. Food for the uh, Chaper Conference coming up in about in about three weeks. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure everyone's in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together as a body of believers to study Your Word, that we have the freedom in this nation to study Your Word and proclaim the truth of the Gospel. Father, we continue to pray for this nation, for our leaders, that you might restrain those who have evil intent and evil plans and plans that would cause the destruction of freedom and liberty in this nation, and that you will uh, put forward and strengthen those who would put forth plans and whose desire is to strengthen freedom in this nation. Father, I pray that you would... uh, Continue to prosper this nation so that we can send out missionaries and continue to support Israel. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would challenge us with what we're studying this evening and that uh, God the Holy Spirit would use it to uh, challenge us in our own spiritual life and our own spiritual responsibilities. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we are moving into a new chapter, but it's not really a new section in in Acts. It is the conclusion, though, of the, the previous section and really serves as a transition from the focus in Jerusalem to the expansion of the church beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Thought we would just start by, um, reading through these first seven verses so we get an understanding of what is uh, going on here, and then uh, we'll start to get into some details, but we really won't get out of the first verse uh, this evening. Now, in in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. 
whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, as we get into this section, this brings us to a conclusion of what's been going on. Uh, up to this point in Acts. Remember the key verse for understanding the outline or the structure of Acts is Acts chapter 1 verse, uh, verse 8, which records Jesus' uh, parting words to the disciples, which actually started in verse 7. But the last thing that he says is that they would, would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the basic structure of, of Acts. And up to this point, we've been focused on what was happening in Jerusalem. But this is a transition because it's in this section that we learn of this. Uh, it's not just talking about the administration of the church, but we're introduced to these uh, seven men, as specifically Stephen and Philip, who will uh, dominate the next uh, two or three chapters before we start moving into the uh, uh, Apostle Paul. It's uh, in this transition that it sets up, introduces us to these new men, and they will be responsible for uh, expanding uh, the church and expanding uh, the ministry of the gospel beyond just Jerusalem to Judea and, uh, and Samaria. We learn a number of important things as we go as we'll go through just these next uh, seven verses. Uh, for example, we see an emphasis on problem solving here. They've got a problem. There are some in the congregation that are complaining. Wouldn't be a church, I guess, if somebody wasn't complaining. But they were complaining, and they didn't really have a just cause. Uh, but they were they had taken. Uh, offense, and there really was something of a of a problem there that had to be dealt with, and so we'll see something about the problem solving technique of the apostles. One thing I should want to point out: uh, a couple of things in just a sort of a summary here is because of the we we don't see the twelve going to prayer prior to making this decision. Now, in light of verse 4, which says that they needed to give themselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word, I don't think it's fair to say, well, they didn't pray about it. They did pray about it, but God is not, even though this is an era when direct revelation still took place, God was not giving them direct revelation to solve the problem. And that sets a pattern for all of us is that God does not give us direct revelation to solve our problems. He's not going to speak into our ear. He's not going to give us a, a, a vibration or a feeling that we're making the right decision. The issue is to take what we know of the Word of God, we pray about it, and then we apply the Word of God to the best of our ability in the circumstances and situation. That's how we develop wisdom. Wisdom comes from application. And so that is what they do here. They uh, go through a process where they bring the, the believers together 
and they explain the problem and say it's a priority issue. The priority for the apostles is the ministry of the word and prayer, but yet uh, the church has grown so rapidly, and there's so many people who have a need that they just can't cover all the bases, so they need to begin to expand the administration. Now, the uh, appointment of these uh, seven is not uh, the appointment of the first deacons. You may have grown up in a church or congregation that taught that, but the, the, the noun deacon is not found here. The noun diakonos is not found here. The verb diakoneo, which means to serve, is found here. But this does, even though they, this isn't the appointment of seven deacons, it is uh, sort of a prototype of what will develop later on in terms of the administration of the church where there are uh, two primary leadership groups, one that focuses on the ministry of the word and prayer and one that focuses on the administrative responsibilities of a local congregation. The group that focuses on the ministry of the word and prayer is the uh, pastor or pastors, depending on the size of a congregation, and the group that focuses on the administration of the logistical details of the congregation um, will be known as as deacons. And how that works really does uh, vary from congregation to congregation, and, and I think that the scriptures give us a broad enough view to where or let's say a narrow enough view to where we understand the division of labor within a congregation, but a broad enough view to where it can be applied by different groups of Christians and organizations within different cultures. We have a culture in the United States and Western Europe that was heavily influenced by the organization of a corporation as that developed coming out of the Industrial Revolution and going into the 19th century and late 19th century, where you developed something that ran a corporation called a board. And that board would meet uh, periodically and discuss the business of the corporation. And in discussing the business of the corporation, they would set policy and decisions, and they would meet on a regular basis and keep minutes, and they appointed a chairman of the board. You don't have that in Scripture. That is how our culture took some scriptural concepts and and organized them. And a lot in the early church, I think the way they did it was you had pastors, and when you had physical needs within a congregation, he appointed different uh, men to be responsible for those areas. And they didn't have a monthly board meeting. There wasn't a chairman of the board. That, that's all a late 19th century corporate idea. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that that wasn't, that, that's how our culture adapted the, the, the uh, principles from scripture into the way we organize and, and run a church. Uh, people in India who don't come out of that background, Christians in India don't organize that way. Uh, until maybe the British came in later, but there were Christians that were already in India before the British showed up. But you have these different kinds of traditions, and it's not that it's doing it a specific way is not right or wrong, but there are there should be this division of labor and division of responsibility where there's one leadership that focuses on the ministry of the word and prayer, and another leadership that focuses on 
taking care of uh, administrative responsibilities and maybe um, just some hands-on ministry. So one of the things we'll learn as we go through this is this need for a division of responsibility and labor as the congregation's needs are, are being met. Um, what I think is interesting is initially, apparently, the apostles tried to do it all. They did the teaching of the word, prayer, and they were also involved in uh, <clears throat> the distribution of food and necessities to the widows uh, in the this new entity, the church. So I'm sure that there were those who were ministered to directly by Peter and John and Andrew and uh, the others. And and one day Peter gets and the other apostles gather everybody together and they have this meeting described here in chapter 6 and they say, we're going to focus on the prayer and teaching the word and the ones who are going to distribute the food and come knocking on your door to make sure that you're being taken care of are going to be these seven men. I wonder how many of those widows said, I don't want Philip, I don't want Procurus, I want John, I want Peter. They're the apostles. I'm making fun of this because this is how so many churches operate today, is that they put all of this type of responsibility, hospital visitation, home visitation, whatever it might be, on the pastoral staff whose responsibility should be teaching the word and prayer, and others should have the delegated responsibility to do hospital visits, to take care of uh, funerals or ministry in other areas. Uh, not that I'm saying I shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that. I uh, go to the hospital uh, when I can, as I can, and I enjoy that time getting to know uh, you, people in the congregation, it's always wonderful to go to the, the hospital and visit with a family that you don't get to know very much, and you, you really see how they're applying the word. And most of the time, it's a real pleasing and surprising uh, experience, and you find out, boy, we have some really mature believers in this congregation who are doing a fabulous job facing all kinds of uh, challenges and difficulty because they've really taken in the word and they're uh, they're applying it in a tremendous way. And uh, I, I enjoy that when I have the time uh, and the opportunity to do that. But if a congregation grows much larger than the one we have, then that's one of the things a pastor just doesn't always have the time to do. And a lot of times the sheep get a little bit, uh, get their uh, uh, wool knotted up because they uh, they think that the pastor ought to be the one to, to come. And I've talked to some of my uh, friends who are pastors in some denominations and other groups, and uh, when I've taught about the responsibilities of a pastor, their response is I, they'd fire me in a heartbeat because the, especially the older ladies in the church, if I'm not the one showing up knocking on the, that door at the hospital, they don't want anybody else there. I said, well, you just have to train them a little better, don't you? But it's it's tough because there are certain denominations who have these kinds of wrong traditions so embedded in the culture of those denominations that it puts an unrealistic expectation upon the pastor, and it's not a biblical expect, expectation. This is uh, laid out here very clearly, and this is just sort of a prototype 
As we go through Acts, we'll see as time went by from the founding of the church in, in AD 33 up through the time that the uh, book of Acts closes out around 62 or 63, that in that time there's more of a refinement, there's more revelation given to specifically the Apostle Paul in terms of organization and administration of a local church. But it's, it's, it starts here that there's not an overt uh, revelation from God as to how they ought to solve this problem, but you see the hand of God, the Holy Spirit, working behind the scenes, and that's exactly how problem solving should take place in a believer's life. We don't go, we don't face a problem. Say, Lord, tell me what I should do here. He's already given you everything you need to know to solve any problem that's in your life. What we need to pray for is wisdom in how we can endure. That's James 1.8. And we need to pray that we might be able to be faithful and endure in the midst of that trial and in the midst of that uh, particular testing. But God's not going to whisper in your ear. He's not going to uh, uh, respond like a, like a Ouija board and tell you what the answer is. He says the test is for you to take what you know and apply it to the circumstance. And in and through that, behind the scenes, God the Holy Spirit is, is often working. We may not, we don't sense it overtly. It's a covert, uh, thing that, uh, that's not obvious to us. But when we look back on those circumstances, often we see, well, the Holy Spirit was really guiding me. He prevented me from making certain decisions through change of circumstances and he opened up other doors, but he never really gave us a feeling that this was what God wanted us to do. He that, That's mysticism. And that's just, a, as I've said before, that's just uh, antinomianism in relation to re, uh, revelation in the Word of God because we have a closed canon now, and God is no longer uh, revealing himself in those kinds of specifics with the uh, closing of the canon. So we'll get into some things related to problem solving tangentially. We're going to do that also on Sunday morning so the two will fit together and blend together. Uh, We also see here that um, uh, when the the involvement of the congregation in making the decisions, when the uh, apostles come forward and they say, here's the plan that we've decided on, we're going to have this division of labor, and they present that to the con- to the congregation, and we're told in verse 5, the saying pleased the whole congregation, and they chose. Now, there's going to, we need to look at that, but there's a debate as to whether the they is the apostles or the they is the church. And the nearest antecedent, the nearest noun, that the they, the plural, would uh, would re- to, to which it would refer is the noun multitude. And so it, uh, the, the best answer here is the multitude chose uh, these men and that they set them, uh, verse 6, reinforces that whom they set. See, there it has to be the congregation. Whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed, that would be the apostles there. So you have to follow where these pronouns go. When they prayed, they had prayed the apostles, they laid hands on them, that is, upon the seven. 
which is we'll see is an act of identification. It's it's not meaningless. It is a it's a stamp of approval. That's how they indicated that it wasn't. They didn't get the, pull out the uh, uh, little wax seal and give them the good housekeeping seal of approval. They laid hands on them, and it's an indication, a physical indication, that we are identified uh, with one another, and they have our uh, our approval, and they would be going forth as an extension of the apostolic ministry. And I think that's really important because in First Corinthians uh, or Second Corinthians twelve twelve, we have the statement by Paul that they went forth with signs and wonders. The signs of an of an apostle uh, performing signs and wonders, miracles and wonders, and that is a for that to be a sign of the apostolic ministry uh, has to be fit with the fact that the there are a few other people within the the, the narrative of Acts who perform miracles and signs and wonders, and Philip and Stephen are among them. But they are extensions of the apostolic core, and they're not operating out from under that. And it goes back to what I was pointing out a couple of weeks ago as we were going through the uh, fifth chapter, is the issue all through here is the apostles and their authority. All the way through till we get to the first missionary journey with Paul, major emphasis is that everything that happens happens under the authority of the body of the apostles in Jerusalem when um, Philip goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel uh, people respond but there's no uh, the, the, there's no baptism of the Holy Spirit there's no coming of the Holy Spirit there's nothing beyond their their simple faith they're saved but they're not brought into the body of the church until Peter and John come up to Samaria and lay hands on them when that happens, then the Holy Spirit comes. With Cornelius, when we get into Acts chapter 10 and 11, when, when Peter is given specific revelation from God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, when Peter goes to take the gospel to the Gentiles, it's the, the Gentiles are brought into the, the entity of the church via Peter's ministry, the apostolic ministry. So none of these groups can, can claim later on that they had a beginning that was separated from the direct involvement of the apostles. And so it's important to recognize that. And Philip and this, this laying out of hands from the apostles indicates a, an extremely close connection with the uh, the seven, that they are an extension. They are the assistants to the apostles. And so what they are doing in a much more real sense than, than other assistants later on, they are c- carrying out and identified with the direct apostolic ministry and apostolic authority. And then in verse 7, uh, Luke, Luke tells us that the word of God spread. They go through an organizational shift and the, this enhances their ministry, and the word of God spreads. Now, the other thing that I want you to notice here, and we'll go through this a couple of more times as we go through, uh, go through Acts, is that two other times Luke comes along and says something about the word of God spreads. It, the word of God is the real change agent 
along with the Holy Spirit. It's not their methodology. It's not that they could have had a more enhanced uh, gospel uh, presentation if they had had the four spiritual laws or if they had only understood evangelism explosion, they would have had 20,000 converts instead of 5,000 converts. The Bible doesn't emphasize the technique as the means by which the church grows. It's the content of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God that causes growth. And we live in an age today where, as a result of uh, things I pointed out before, one of which is corporate expansion, salesmanship, uh, the many of the tools that are used to build corporations and build build large businesses are thought by many people that we just sort of baptize those techniques and bring them into the church and we can build a huge organization we can have 15,000 members in our church we can have 20,000 yes you can those techniques are tried and true but they're products of the flesh not the holy spirit uh, when i was ordained the pastor who ordained me said you always remember that when uh, that anybody with brains and energy can build a huge organization. That doesn't mean God the Holy Spirit has anything to do with it. You may have a church of 25 people, and God the Holy Spirit may be more involved with those 25 people than he's involved with any large church of 3,000, 4,000, 10,000, or 20,000. And that's the truth, and we've lost sight of it today because we've been so infected with numbers and quantification as the standard for measuring success. And in 1 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says what, what is required of a steward is that he be found faithful. Not that he have so many converts a year, not that he have a, so many members in the church every year, not that he perform so many baptisms a year, but that he is found faithful, faithful in ministering to the congregation through the teaching of the word. So as you can see, there's a number of important doctrines, key ideas and topics that are embedded within uh, these uh, uh, six or seven verses, seven verses, and uh, we'll touch on those and lay a foundation because a lot of these are going to come up as we progress through the book of Acts. So we'll build uh, as we go through this. Now, verse one begins in those days. This indicates a direct connection between the events in chapter 6 and what we've just read at the end of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, we get uh, the conclusion to that progress report, which began at the end of chap- towards the end of chapter 4. And we read in verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house, They did not, that is the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Now, I translate it that way. I think it's a much stronger translation to say they were preaching Jesus as the Messiah because that puts the focus on the fact that the content of their message was to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the prophecies related to the Messiah in the Old Testament. You may not realize this, but a trend, a large trend, huge trend in evangelical scholarship over the last uh, 40 years has been to uh, minimize 
the reality of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. This just goes along with a general drift of uh, pseudo-scholarship that has infected evangelicalism over the last uh, 30 or 40 years and runs counter to the historic teaching of uh, sound, biblical, Bible-based uh, Protestant theology over the last uh, 400 years. Unfortunately, there were uh, even some reformers such as John Calvin who minimized this, and that is because of uh, certain influences upon them uh, as they were learning Hebrew and learning about the Old Testament uh, because they went to uh, Jewish rabbis for the study of Hebrew. And there was a shift that occurred around the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries in rabbinic uh, studies in Judaism that began to reinterpret messianic prophecies from the Old Testament to uh, uh, statements, prophecies that have been already fulfilled at some time historic. That way they could get away from the fact that passages like Isaiah 53 were obviously fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. And it took about 800 to 1,000 years for, uh, before a rabbi finally came up with a creative enough solution to try to reinterpret the passage so uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews would quit converting to Christianity when they read Isaiah 53. And that is uh, that was pretty standard. So when you had Calvin and other early Protestant uh, leaders going to rabbis to study Hebrew, they picked up from them some of this theology that minimized uh, minimized pr- uh, pro- prophecy uh, from the Old Testament. But I covered a number of these issues about a year ago, Christmas of 2010, in a series that we called "What Is Important About the Messiah." And that's listed on the uh, uh, Dean Bible website under the holiday specials folder for December of 2010. And you ought to go back and listen to those. But that's, that is the focal point of the preaching and the teaching that occurred in the early church. Now, teaching is a term that relates to uh, explanation and instruction. Preaching is not what many people today think of as preaching. Today, the concept of preaching has been redefined in terms of a rhetorical style. And you can flip on any number of the Christian channels on any number of days, and you will get a pretty good idea of an oratorical style that has been called preaching. Uh, Especially if you watched, uh, you had a great example of... uh, Black Baptist preaching at the funeral last Saturday for uh, for Whitney Houston. I mean, it just followed. All, it, he just hit all the marks, uh, and he did a did a great job. Too bad he didn't make the gospel clear. I want to emphasize. I think he did a great job if you're preaching to a group of of Christians, and that was the really a focal point of his of his teaching was that he took a passage, and he emphasized what was there, which was priority. But that was not what you should emphasize in terms of a mixed congregation at a funeral. You need to tell people how to, why you know that Whitney Houston was going to go to heaven when she died and how you can go to heaven also when you die. And that is because of what the scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You never heard that. You never heard him say, anybody say, believe at any time. You never heard anyone quote 
any salvation verses in that entire uh, entire message. The closest that anyone came was when when the um, when the heretic uh, T. D. Jakes. And I call him a heretic because he's a Jesus only Pentecostal. He doesn't believe in the Trinity, so he is truly a heretic. Uh, when T.D. Jakes got up and he said that our salvation wasn't free, Jesus Christ had to pay for it on the cross. That was great, but he didn't tell us how to get it. No mention of believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody mentioned faith. But, um, but that sermon, if you listen to that, that was a classic rhetorical style. But it's not what the Bible talks about in terms of preaching. The, the, the verb for preaching is the verb keruso, which means simply to announce something, to proclaim something as true. And it may very well include uh, instruction and explanation in the process of making the announcement or the proclamation. It is not talking about a certain structure. It's not talking about a certain way to pace yourself through the message. It's not talking about how to do three points in a poem. Uh, it's not talking about a, only a 15-minute message because you don't want to uh, stress anybody's uh, attention span. And these are all go into modern homiletical uh, theory today. And But this is not what the word uh, preaching meant. It wasn't tied to a rhetorical style as it has become today. It was closely tied, though, to the word teaching, uh, which indicates explanation and instruction. And we have seen examples of that with Peter already as he went to the Old Testament, quoted Old Testament passages, and applied them to and showed how they were fulfilled by Jesus. And that was the point, is they were, were teaching and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. So they were clearly showing how Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus. So it's in those days, right after that trial that we studied last time, when Gamaliel made his statement that if this is not from God, it'll die out, but if it's from God, it will succeed. That's not exactly a accurate statement, but it was true enough in the circumstances. And it's after that, now in those days, and then we read that um, we read the statement, when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So it is a result of the teaching of the word of God that, uh, that there is an ex- uh, expansion of the number of Christians. Now, the phrase, the, the verse uses the phrase, the disciples. It's very important to understand what this term means. It's from the uh, translation of the Greek noun, methetes, which describes someone as a learner, a student, an apprentice, someone who came to be taught by a specific teacher, a scholar, or someone who followed a respected teacher and was very closely identified with that teacher, as Saul of Tarsus was with Gamaliel. So this is the the meaning of the word disciple. This is the first time in Acts that we see believers referred to as disciples. The twelve are not called or referred to as disciples at any point prior to this. They are apostles at this stage. 
an apostle is not does not have an, a wife called an epistle. Just remember that. So there are <clears throat> there are numerous disciples. This word will now be used twenty eight more times in twenty six verses in the remainder of Acts. So it is a term that is often applied to Christians. So what does the word mean? One other thing I should note before we go on, the, the noun is used 28 times, but the verb is only used one time. Now, and, and, and Jesus' parting instructions during the 40 days between the uh, resurrection and the ascension, one of the things that is stated and restated in each of the Gospels is Jesus' parting commands to teach and to make disciples. And he gives this command, the, the one that is most commonly referred to is Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is called the Great Commission, when Jesus says, uh, go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. So that the two participles, te- uh, baptizing and teaching, refer to uh, how a disciple is made that the goal wasn't just evangelism. See, baptism was understood in the early church to be something that would immediately follow a person's um, conversion, their faith in Christ, as we'll see with the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter, I think it's coming up in chapter 8, that he uh, he immediately is baptized after he uh, trusts in Jesus as his Savior. So there wasn't this kind of a gap of months or we- weeks or months or years between uh, someone's conversion, someone's faith in Christ, and, and baptism. So baptism basically stands for and summarizes all that was involved at that point in time when a person would trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and then would be uh, baptized through immersion in believer's baptism. And then the second way in which you make a disciple was by teaching. So the word isn't equivalent to becoming a Christian. That's the most important thing to understand because if you ever run into certain people who are, we usually refer to them as holding to lordship salvation, but a lot of times you just find that it's people who are untaught or people who uh, really haven't uh, been uh, understood the distinction between a disciple and a Christian, and they think that that becoming a Christian is responding to Jesus' challenges to become a disciple. And a disciple and a belie- and a Christian are two different things. For a disciple, teaching and learning are at the very core of the meaning of a disciple. If you have a disciple, what do you always have with the disciple? You always have the master, the teacher. So there's always, if there's a disciple, there's someone who he is learning from, someone who is teaching him, someone who is guiding him. In the Gospels, uh, where you have the mention of the word disciple many times, uh, Jesus' ministry was a ministry that focused on teaching, and, and we see in a very broad sense that he teaches the multitude. You have the feeding of the 5,000 in John, where the 5,000 were all men. So the crowd wasn't just 5,000 men. There were uh, women and children that were in the multitude as well, so the crowd could have been as large as fifteen or 20,000. Uh, and so there, also you have the feeding of the 4,000 in another event. But in these circumstances, Jesus is teaching to a, a large 
uh, multitude. And this was what he did in the first two to two and a half years of his ministry. Matthew 4.23 says, And Jesus went about all of Galilee teaching in their synagogue. So he went from Capernaum to Bethsaida to Tiberias to uh, various other uh, uh, cities and villages and towns, and he uh, taught in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which means he was proclaiming the same message that John the Baptist had announced, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that the people needed to repent and toward God and respond to that to that message. Along with that is a validation of his messianic claims. He was healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. So he's teaching a lot of people, and that attracted people to him, as the gospel says, because he taught with authority, unlike the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the Sadducees. And so people were attracted to him, and they would go out when he was teaching. They would follow him. And these groups were called disciples. But it's in a, a loose sense. So the first area of meaning for a disciple was someone who was just loosely affiliated with the teacher, someone who was curious uh, but not committed, somebody who wanted to learn what this particular teacher wanted to teach, but that did not necess- necessarily mean that they were even a believer. They were just a student. Can you name one disciple who wasn't a believer? Pop quiz. Judas, I'm sure somebody thought of that, uh, and he wasn't the only one. We'll see a couple of verses in a minute that indicate that there were others. Uh, second thing I want to point out is that not all uh, not all believers became disciples, and not all disciples were believers. So the terms are not interchangeable. Uh, but then there's a there is a second level of reference to the word disciple, which does refer to someone who was a believer. And this is seen in John 2.11, where we're told this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is a reference to Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they are believing that he is the Messiah. So at this level, in this verse, a disciple was a believer, but not all disciples were believers, and not all believers are disciples. So as you look at, read through the Gospels, there are over 250 references uh, made to disciples. You can't read through the ministry of Jesus Christ without recognizing that he wasn't just limiting his message to getting people saved. He was calling people to a commitment in terms of their spiritual life. So the normative position is for people to trust in Christ as Savior and then be completely committed to growing to spiritual maturity. That's what God expects. Now, that's not a condition for salvation. God isn't saying you have to be 100% committed He's not saying you have to accept the lordship of Christ to be saved. Salvation is a free gift, but discipleship was part was worked for. It was earned. It was spirit, post-salvation spiritual growth. And so these ideas have to be kept uh, kept distinct. 
and Jesus was calling his disciples, especially the uh, the twelve, to a higher level of commitment. And that's true for every one of us. God doesn't just say, I, I just want you to be saved. He wants every believer to pursue spiritual maturity. That is the highest will of God is for every believer to achieve spiritual maturity and glorify him to the maximum. But that's not what's required in order to be justified. But that is what's required to be a disciple in the fullest sense of the word. And we see a hint of this again in John chapter 6. If you want to, I'm going to start looking at John 6 in terms of the uh, uh, verse 60 just to pick up the context. Jesus is ministering to a large crowd. This is the time when he gives the discourse out by the Sea of Galilee uh, that he is the uh, bread of heaven, the bread of life. And he has been challenging them in terms of their commitment. He's challenging the multitude in terms of their commitment uh, to him. And when he gets through with all of this, in verse 60, we read, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, I don't think that's referring to the twelve. I think that's referring to the crowd in the most general sense of the word disciple. Uh, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, now here it shifts, talking about to the, shifting to the twelve, does this offend you? What well, then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now in that statement he's talking about specifically about Judas. So here he refers to them as disciples, but one of them is not a believer. Um, <clears throat> John inserts the editorial comment. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Verse 65, Jesus said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Uh, And then verse 66, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. See, here you have disciples who say, Eh, that's it. I've reached a... 5% 5% commitment, I've reached 10% commitment, I've reached 20%, but I'm out of here. You're just asking a little bit too much. Going to a church on Sunday is one thing, but going Sunday morning, Tuesday night, and Thursday night, well, that's just asking too much of me. I'm going to go some other church where I can just feel good. And that's what happens. There are a lot of people who just don't want to be called to excellence in the Christian life. They would rather you know, they, they they would rather volunteer to go in the army and just be a buck private their entire career, never uh, excel, never uh, never go to ranger school or airborne school, never try to pursue excellence at all. They just want to barely get by and say they have done something. And um, and what God is calling us all to be is to be uh, great warriors in spiritual warfare for uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the standard. Uh, God is calling us to be to all pursue a standard of absolute excellence in the Christian life. 
But there are a lot of people who just, they're just not going to do that, and they just peel off. Some of them are believers, and they grow a little bit. Some of them never were. Some of these disciples here never were believers. They, they started listening to Jesus, and after a while they said, no, I'm just not believing this at all. Verse 67, then Jesus, after seeing many of these walk away, Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So there are disciples who hang in there, and there are disciples who don't hang in there. So the meaning of the word disciple is going to change from context to context. Uh, Jesus had this high standard of, of uh, discipleship that he uh, calls the uh, everyone to, as seen in Luke 9, 23 to 25. He says, and this is repeated again in Luke 14, 27. So Jesus made this statement more on more than one occasion. Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now that is not a condition for salvation or justification. This is a condition for being a disciple. Taking up your cross daily has to do with being uh, willing to take on God's plan for your life, no matter what it might entail. God's plan for Jesus' life was to go to the cross. God's plan for somebody else's life uh, may entail something different. But it's a willingness to be completely committed to fulfilling God's plan and purpose for your life and to follow Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you are more concerned with personal pleasure, personal security, becoming, uh, you know, pursuing your own significance in your plan for your life, then in the end, when you think that you have grabbed hold of life, you will find that you have grabbed nothing but empty air, that real life consists of fulfilling God's plan for your life and doing exactly as God would have you to do, and that's the only time that we're ever going to experience the full, uh, full significance of what God has planned for us. So if we desire to save our life by pursuing our own agenda, we'll end up losing our life, but... Whoever loses his life, which means to give up your agenda uh, for, for Christ's sake, will save it. Verse 25, for what profit is it to a man that if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? So Jesus calls us to a higher level of commitment, not for salvation, but in terms of the spiritual life to, to experience everything that God uh, has for us, but that is predicated upon our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Another passage that relates to this is Matthew eleven twenty eight to thirty. Sometimes this is you'll hear this as a gospel invitation. Jesus said, "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." The reference to labor and heavy laden are those who are trying to work their way to righteousness, those who are trying to earn God's approval by what they do. This is an incredibly uh, large burden for us to bear. We can never do anything to gain God's approval. 
So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, a yoke was uh, what was put on a pair of oxen in order to guide them and bring them under submission to the control of the, um, of the farmer. So taking uh, uh, Christ's yoke upon him is accepting his authority in our life. Now, this will really preach if you believe in lordship salvation. But Jesus is talking about justification here. Jesus is talking about uh, discipleship, becoming a committed disciple and growing to uh, maturity. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In other words, if you accept my authority, it's not going to be burdensome like that of the uh, scribes and the Pharisees. And so this challenge is set forth in relation to uh, each one of us. Are you willing to grow to maturity and just pursue excellence in the spiritual life? Or are you going to settle for mediocrity? Are you going to settle for uh, second best? Are you just going to settle because you're just glad you're going to be in heaven and it really doesn't matter whether you're, you know, down in the fifth ward or living in River Oaks? And I've had people tell me that, say, well, I don't really care if I'm living in River Oaks when I go to heaven. Just as long as I'm there, I'll be happy if I'm down in the ghetto. No, you won't be, because that means you're a failure at the judgment seat of Christ, and you haven't uh, fulfilled God's plan for your life. And you're going to miss out on an enormous number of blessings and privileges when you get into the millennial kingdom. So when we look at Acts 5, here what we see, Acts, uh, excuse me, Acts 6, 1, that the number of the disciples, and so what sense is this talking about? I think this is a sense we're talking about generally believers who have, uh, who are saved or justified, but it includes a huge number. Some of them are, uh, they want to learn, they're devoted to the teaching of the disciples, but whether they hang in there or not is yet to be determined. So it's a, it's a, a little more of a general sense but it is roughly synonymous with, uh, with being a Christian in this context. But remember, disciple is not equivalent to being a Christian in every context. So you have a large group of believers. As I've said before, we have somewhere between 20 or 25,000, maybe 30,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time. So now we have an administrative problem. It's tough for 12 men to manage and administer the needs of 25 or 30,000, especially when there's a large number of widows that are in this congregation and that have needs uh, that need to be taken care of. And the responsibility of the church in relation to widows is an extremely significant one. I'll wait until next time to develop that, but let's just look at what the problem was. The problem is between those who are called Hebrews and those who are called Hellenists. There have been several different solutions uh, proposed. Uh, I've, I've identified six for this identification. The first is that this, the, the Hebrews referred to Greek, or the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews rather than Aramaic-speaking Jews. 
But the term Hebrews, as it's used here in six one, is rarely, if ever, used to refer to a language group. So that's not the best solution. Uh, second solution is that the Greeks related to Gentile proselytes to Judaism as opposed to uh, those who were ethnic Jews who had converted to Christ. Uh, the list in uh, in six five of those deacons it gives Greek names, but many mo- most Jews had a Greek name, had an, an Aramaic name, and so that doesn't mean anything. Uh, they were probably referred to by their Greek name because they were going to be ministering to the Hellenist uh, widows, and so that would be a more comfortable environment for them to uh, be calling them by their their Greek name. Uh, another option is that these were uh, uh, Jews from the uh, diaspora who were living in uh, Judea or, uh, or uh, Galilee, and uh, uh, that would refer to the, uh, the Hellenists. Uh, another uh, option is that these were uh, pro- a pro-Hellenist sect within Judaism. Another option, some think that this refers to Gentiles who joined the church uh, at an early date, um, and others would think that this is more of a general term. I think the best solution is that there were a number of of uh, Jews that had uh, been part of the diaspora, that grew up in a more of a Greek culture, and had moved to Judea or to Galilee. Uh, and this would have possibly be a reason why there were so many widows is because a lot of widows would have perhaps moved back to Judea after their husbands died. And this would uh, indicate a larger number of widows for this population uh, than normal. The Hebrews would refer to Jews that were native-born to Judea or Galilee, and so they were locals. And they, they, the, those who had, uh, made aliyah, as it were, or immigrated back to, uh, Judea, uh, felt that they, as if they were being, uh, overlooked, that they were, uh, uh, there was a slight prejudice against them, and they weren't being treated fairly in light of the distribution of, uh, food and resources, uh, as it was given to the, uh, those who were the Hebrews. And so this complaint arose. We're not being treated as well as the, uh, as the Hebrews, as the native born. So you can see that uh, this is a problem. We still have those same kind of complaints being raised in society today. And so the 12 uh, exercise real initiative and leadership here in solving the problem. They come up with a solution and they will summon the multitude to take care of it. Why are they taking care of the widows? What's the significance of this? This is something um, I want to address a little more fully next time as we look at what the Scripture teaches about this. It's interesting that in our congregation, and uh, we all, all of you got the uh, email, I'm sure, that Dar Carner went to be with the Lord uh, early on Sunday morning. And uh, this brings another widow into our congregation. We have between 12 and 14 widows in our congregation. And there's a responsibility that we have as a congregation and that the leadership of the church has in terms of uh, being able to support and take a stand 
uh, for the widows. We live in a culture today where there's all kinds of people who want to take advantage of widows. And at, even though they, if you're a widow, you have, may have family in the area and there's a responsibility there as we'll see. There's also a responsibility for the leaders of the congregation to make sure to stand in the gap and be a, a, a source of protection uh, for the widows in the congregation to make sure that they are not being uh, taken advantage of. And this is something that is uh, very important. In fact, I've heard some things kind of through the grapevine where uh, there were some people who made some rather foolish and wrong statements at some point, and, um, and it really has just uh, you know, really angered me when I heard that, that, that it is the responsibility of the church to protect those who have no one to stand uh, to protect them. And so we'll get into this next time. We'll see that the, the Word of God puts an emphasis on taking care of widows and, and orphans all the way through from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament as a uh, fundamental ministry within the body of believers. So we'll come back and develop that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the Word this evening and to uh, recognize uh, the fact that when we face problems, that we go, come to you in prayer, but that you answer through your word. You give us wisdom uh, through the application of your word in solving problems, as we see with the apostles here. And it is through that, uh, that unseen, covert work of the Holy Spirit that you work in our lives and move us along the path to maturity. We're reminded that there is a standard a standard of excellence that the Lord Jesus Christ set forth, that we've been called to be disciples, to be uh, 150% committed to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and that we should uh, give it everything we have, not settle for um, mediocrity, not settle for uh, halfway measures, uh, not be satisfied with just a little bit of knowledge of your word, but satisfied only with a tremendous amount of knowledge and application of your word in our life. And may we not settle for second best. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.